My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Mark Evans. I've become a friend to this church over the past few years, mainly because of my friendship with uh, Pastor Mike Landsman and his wife, Shantae. Mike and I went to seminary together, and uh, we've been friends over the last nearly 15 years. And when he's away, I tend to be here. Uh, So uh, it's a blessing to be here, and I'm glad to be back. Uh, Pray for Mike and Shantae. They are honoring their father and mother uh, by visiting Shantae's parents in Virginia for the weekend. Some of you have been praying for Shantae's father as he is receiving treatments for cancer. Uh, so this is a, a, uh, a burden on them, and they love their parents, and they want to be with them. So we're, we're uh, glad that they're away visiting with family. Reagan just read for us Psalm 120. Um, Psalm 120 is part of a series of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. These psalms would have been sung by the Jews as they made their way up to Jerusalem three times a year for their festivals. Those festivals were the uh, Feast of Pentecost, uh, the Feast of the Passover, and the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Three times a year, faithful Jews made their way up to Jerusalem. Now, here's a little geography question. Why are you always going up to Jerusalem, no matter what direction you're coming from? North, south, east, or west? Why are you always going up to Jerusalem? Any ideas? Why? Because it is a city on a hill. You're always ascending. That's why these are called the Psalms of Ascent. This is the first psalm that they would have sung. They would have almost certainly had these 15 psalms memorized. And they would sing them as they go. But this first psalm is not a happy psalm. It's really a psalm of distress. Have you ever been distressed? If you're human, you have. Some of you are quite distressed right now. And we don't know why, right? You know why. Health. Family, a a terrible work situation, you may be distressed. So this psalm at first glance is not exactly happy. Now the question becomes, what is the psalmist, the writer, distressed about? What is making him distressed? Well, at first glance, it looks like he's distressed because he says he's surrounded by lies. Uh, In verse 2 he says, he's surrounded by lying lips, deceitful tongues. Uh, And verse 6, he says, he's surrounded by those who hate peace. Now, there are many commentators who, and I think they're right about this, they don't believe his distress is mainly about what is happening to him, but it's mainly about a worldview that he sees around him. That his worldview in God, understanding who God is, is actually, over time, as he understands who God is, His worldview is running contrary to the world that he sees around him. So it could be that he's facing some attacks, but it's more likely, as Eugene Peterson says, that the songs of ascent, and this psalm particularly, are not mainly about people slandering him, 
He believes that he's coming in contact with a worldview that distresses him. Interestingly, falsehood and lying are definitive marks of the sinful nature. When the Apostle Paul in the New Testament talks about the sinful nature in Romans 3, he says their throat is an empty grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Now, we must remember that when we look out at the worldviews around us that are not shared by us as believers, it's not our job to demonize the world. God's goodness is all around us. But we must be thoughtful. We need to be thoughtful people and know the messages that the world is sending us. And we need to know how to think about them. If not, we might unwittingly find that we are beginning to buy into lies that will destroy us. And there are so many lies around us. What are the lies of our day? What are the lies of our day? In other words, what are the messages that our culture sends that do not line up with God and his word? There are so many. I'll just name a few. In our day, we are seduced into the idea that there's no truth, particularly no cross-cultural truth. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me? Maybe, maybe you've said it. In our day, we are tempted to believe that truth is exclusively personal. That somehow my personal truth will somehow shape my future. And if I personally don't believe in the afterlife, I won't face God at the end of my life. But if I do believe in the afterlife, then eternity, then I, I can have an eternity with God and peace with Him. That somehow I can shape my future based on my own personal belief system. That is a thought in our world. What are some other lies of our day? Today, like in the psalmist day, there are lies about gender and sexuality. There are lies about the existence of God. There are lies about almost anything important. Interestingly, our culture tells us that what God... Oh, our, our culture tells us that God really shouldn't have much to do with any of our choices that we make. We want to be highly individualized. We want to be in control of the way that we think. Now, as this psalmist came in contact with this worldview, it distressed him. Now, there are lies in our culture that are less sinister than the ones I just said. How about a lie like this that I'm tempted to believe all the time? How about a lie that busyness brings happiness? In our American culture, we don't want to slow down. We don't want to feel like we're unproductive. We want to work long hours. We want to overcommit. We want to sign up our kids for every activity under the sun. And we schedule out our hours, days, weeks, and months. And somehow this promises us joy and peace. But like all lies, it never delivers. And at the very end of this passage, the psalmist says that he is for peace. But they, these unbelievers, are for war. One of the indelible marks of the world around us is its love for conflict. Our world says that it wants peace, but what the sin nature really craves is conflict. Now, conflict makes a great story, right? Every good book you read has a conflict. Every good movie you watch has a conflict. Every good show, there's some sort of a conflict. Uh, that's why we like sports, right? It's two teams competing against one another. That makes it interesting. When it's a blowout, it's not that interesting. But conflict creates intrigue. We know that. But in our personal lives, conflict can destroy us. I'm a school teacher. Young people think about this. 
My students always like to complain to me about the drama. Mr. Evans, there's so much drama out there, right? And the, the, they pretend like they're sick of it. And I always say to my students, and I, I try to have a good relationship with them, and I say, man, the drama seems to be really following you around, doesn't it? And they don't like, oh, Mr. Evans, I'm not part of the problem. I'm never part of the problem. We do have an internal craving for drama and conflict, but it will destroy us. Lies and conflict are all around us. They come to us through messages that we receive from liberals and conservatives. They come at us through the media. They can even be found hanging around the church of Jesus Christ. And we would be mistaken if we weren't on our guard to recognize that some lies appeal to us, appeal to us more than others. Some lies in our world are abhorrent to us, but some lies are attractive to my sinful nature. And when we talk to our children, we always think about, we always talk about sin as if it's so disgusting that we can't imagine how any person would enjoy it. I think we're painting an inaccurate picture for our children. Sin can be quite enjoyable for a season. Sin presents itself as satisfying the deep longings of our body and soul. It feeds us for a little while, but ultimately sin wages war against us. And if not repented of and dealt with, it will destroy us. Look at verses 3 and 4 in this text. The psalmist pronounces judgment on those who do not repent of their promotion of lies. He is being poetic when he says that their end is a warrior's sharp arrow and the fire of a burning broom tree. And the psalmist struggles because the idea of the world around him and the battle he faces within is wearing him down. It is distressing him. The lies are wearing him down. He feels as if he is dwelling in a sinful land and has been, according to him, too long in this land. He's just plain worn out. Now, where does he live? Where does he live? The psalmist talks about his travels and his dwelling in the Psalms. He describes himself as a sojourner or traveler in Meshech. And he dwells or lives among the tents of Kedar. First of all, we need to realize that when the psalmist talks about Meshech, he's talking about modern-day Turkey by the Black Sea in southern Asia. And Kedar is in the Arabian desert. The psalmist didn't live in two locations. He's painting a picture. He's making poetic statements that display that God's people were living, many of God's people were living far from the land of Israel. The locations mentioned are uh, heavy concentrations of people that do not know the Lord far from the city of Jerusalem, far from the temple. And this was the perfect song to begin a pilgrimage. It's, it's the perfect song to be sung by people who live in territory hostile to the commands of God. They were outsiders. They were not insiders. This psalmist did not live in Jerusalem. And here's one thing that we learn from the entirety of Scripture. On some level, God's people must think of themselves as sojourners or exiles or strangers in the world. God's people must think of themselves as a minority people, not a majority people. But here's the strange twist. Christians, we are exiles, sojourners, and strangers in this world. Yet we are warned to never walk around and view people that don't share our beliefs negatively. We're, we're warned to never walk around with a chip on our shoulder. To not think ourselves 
superior to others. Is that difficult to do? We are sojourners in this world, yet we're not above people who don't share our beliefs, right? We're not above them. Christ makes us humble. How does he do this? How does Christ make us humble? It has to do with the way that he shapes our thinking. What does it mean to walk faithfully in our world? It's a good question for us to ask ourselves. What does it mean to be faithful? Traditionally, Christians are tempted to gravitate to two extremes when it comes to the way they think about interacting with this world. The first extreme is what we call separatism or escapism. Separatism find its, finds its roots in the biblical idea of holiness. God's people are called to be holy or set apart. We're commanded by God to be holy as he is holy. So at times in the history of the church, Christians have been separatists. At times in the history of the church, Christians have been so concerned about the lies of the world that they've begun to create their own little worlds, subcultures. Wherever you have the term Christian as an adjective, you have vestiges of a separatistic movement. The belief of the separatist is that there are lies out there, which is true, and the best way for me to separate myself, myself from those lies is to create my own little world. But if I do that, I might soon find my, that my only interaction in this world is with people who share my beliefs. What I find is that I don't really have any unbelieving friends. There's no environment, if I share this belief, that my family goes to that we can make the light of Christ shine in darkness. If I oppose the lives of this world by becoming a separatist, I can find that the only people that my light shines before are people who already have the light of Christ. So separatism is an incredible environment for pride and superiority to grow. We don't want to be a people of pride and superiority, do we? So what's, what are we called to? Well, there's another unhealthy extreme that we can live in as believers. We can live in a world of, we can live in a thought of compromise or worldliness. Just as separatism begins with scriptural truth, so does worldliness. Remember, Jesus came into this world, so we have to live robustly in this world. He took on flesh. He became like mankind in order to reach mankind. This is called his incarnation. Jesus Christ takes on flesh. But we can become so integrated into a society that there's no distinction between us and our unbelieving neighbors. In an effort to relate to people, we might end up being just like them. And we begin to adopt their values. We can begin to believe the lies around us. We begin to think like the world. And we no longer make an impact on the world for Christ. Over time, we can become indistinguishable from the world. So what are we to do? We can't be separatists. And we can't be compromisers. What are we to do? What does it mean to be faithful? What is faithfulness? I must, we must always ask ourselves this. What is faithfulness? Whenever we want to know the faithfulness of God, we must look to the Son. The psalmist in 120 
cries out to the Lord in his distress. He doesn't look inward. He looks upward. First verse. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I looked up to the Lord. One of the most dangerous things we can do when we're asking the question, what does it mean to be faithful, is to look inward to my own feelings. We must look upward. We must look to God and we know the Lord through his word. If Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, then he is the author and perfecter of our faithfulness. He not only saves us by his goodness, but shows us how to live in this world. And how did he live? Do you know this? Jesus was holy and set apart, but he was no separatist. Jesus befriended the woman at the well, and she was a Samaritan. One of the great criticisms of Jesus by those who possessed a false holiness was that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus went into compromising environments in order to show people who God was. But Jesus was never a compromiser. Jesus did not adopt the values of this world that ran contrary to his nature. He would never, he would even oppose the values of the falsely religious. There was an intense pressure on Jesus in order to appear holy and to add to the commands of God, but he never added to the commands of God. There was also pressure on him to live like the world and accumulate respect, wealth, and status for himself for himself at the expense of God's commands. He was even tempted by Satan himself, but Jesus never compromised. Do you think Jesus was even weary like this psalmist? He was. Jesus became weary. It's all over the Gospels. His weariness is recorded. Jesus was even distressed. He was distressed at negative worldviews. He was distressed at death. He cries and weeps at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. He sweats drops of blood. He was distressed. Did he ever get tired of criticism from all different types of people around him? I'm sure he did. What is God's response to the psalmist? Well, there isn't much response given in this text. But the psalmist does say, In my distress, I called out to the Lord, verse 1. And was the Lord silent? Verse 1 says, The Lord answered me. God is listening and aware and answering to the distresses of people. It may not be stated in this chapter, but as one commentator says, the psalmist had already received assurance that the Lord would deal with his problem. God is not silent when it comes to the suffering of his people. God is not silent when people call out in distress. God's people are encouraged to call out to God. They can cry out. And what is their assurance that God will hear or answer them? Psalm 40 verse 1 says, 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. If we, if we cry out to God and say, God, I am distressed. I am surrounded by lies. Sometimes I believe them. In our distress, we must look to God who knows what it means to be slandered. We must look to God who knows what it means to be completely surrounded by lies. God will hear our cry and answer us. Jesus is God in flesh. And though he had never sinned, he was slandered and accused of violating the law of God. Lies were told about him. So not only was, not only was Jesus surrounded by lies, lies were told about him. In addition, he left the perfection of heaven in order to live in a world that embraces deceit. He came to willingly live in a world that opposed his very character and his mission. He didn't try to escape. And he wouldn't compromise. But he trusted in his Father and lived on earth in order to finish the work that God sent him to do. He was sent to be born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And even died in perfection on the cross. In addition, God raised him from the dead and he proves that he has victory over sin and death. You see, we cannot save ourselves. We really shouldn't even defend ourselves. We cannot escape this world. But we must look to Jesus he has accomplished the work of salvation for all people of faith. We must turn to him and turn away from the lies of this world. Jesus, interestingly, perfectly resisted lies. He perfectly lived on this earth. He perfectly died. And he perfectly resurrected. And he will return someday to judge the living and the dead. Be found in him by faith. And be comforted by a God who knows your every distress and identifies with you in your struggle on this earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are not alone and we're thankful that we're not alone. We have the community of believers right here in this church. But more importantly than that, we have you, a God who inclines his ear to our cries and answers us. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon podcast for Zion Stone Church. I'm Reverend Mike Lantman, and I'd like to extend to you an invitation, if you're ever in our area, to please worship with us Sunday mornings at 1015. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or would like some information about the church, or just have some questions, feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page or via email. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.